0: Support for
1: WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org.
2: in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes and it is great to have you along. Coming up today we'll visit with Atlanta-based comedian Lace Larrabee and hear about her comedy album White Trash Cinderella. Plus City Lights producer Summer Evans catches up with actor Sarah Michelle Geller, and will premiere our newest addition to our Speaking Of series Speaking of Yollywood. First, NPR's Tiny Desk Concert Series has brought musical joy to tight spaces since its inception in 2008. Created by Bob Boylan and currently produced by Bobby Carter, over 1,000 musical artists have set up at Bob's desk. And in 2014, the team decided to open the door wider with the creation of the Tiny Desk Contest. The competition asks for unsigned bands and musicians to submit videos in hopes of being chosen to perform as part of the NPR Music Discovery Series. Joining me now via Zoom to give Atlanta the scoop on the Tiny Desk Contest are both creator and producer Bob Boylan and Bobby Carter. Welcome to City
0: Lights. Thank hey, you. how are you? Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Hi.
2: Very honored to have you both here. I'm a big fan. Bob, what inspired you to create the very first Tiny Desk
0: concert? Uh, the concert itself came out of sort of a joke. Uh, I was at a <laughs> South by Southwest with uh Workmate here at NPR Music, Stephen Thompson, went to see a singer, a really quiet singer. Her name was Laura Gibson. Went to a concert at uh, South by to see her. And everybody was watching the basketball game in, the, in, in oh. this quote-unquote venue. And, uh, and when she came off stage, Stephen jokingly said to her, you know, Laura Gibson, we, we couldn't hear you. you. You actually just ought to just come play a." A private concert for us at our office, and uh, I used to be a video producer, audio engineer, and stuff. And and my brain just exploded. And I thought, yeah, let's do this. That'd be awesome. So she came three weeks later. She was on tour, and we did it. You can even watch that one. Uh, 15 years ago, and you'll see Stephen and I up there saying, this could be the start of something, maybe not. We'll see. Oh, uh,
2: uh, I love it. You have that line on with, audio? Yeah, we actually, because that's exactly what it was. That's so rare that someone has that Inception moment actually <laughs> on tape. Well, since then, you've had yeah. over 1,000 musical guests. What's it been like watching the series grow over the years?
0: Just with, with no idea that, A, you know, it would be loved by a large community, and it would be the bucket list item for so many artists who get signed to labels. I, I can't tell you how many times some you know, label or publicist or artists will say to me, this is the thing I want to do. Or they come to the desk and say, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. This is my life dream. And it's like, who would have imagined that coming to an office and playing a concert as a musician was <laughs> going to be their life dream? So there's that. And then uh, Bobby probably had a lot more to that.
3: For me, it's how it happened. It's a happy accident, um, the, the idea, but even like the explosion of it, no one expected it, not even us. So for me, it's, it's just a it's just grassroots sort of organic way that it, it blossomed and, and exploded into what it is today.
2: I love that. Bobby, it's my understanding that you started at NPR as an intern once upon a time, and you have since worked your way up to senior yes. producer. What do you love most about working with the musicians that come through?
3: Well, I started interning for this guy. He he wasn't uh, very nice, but he was all right. His name was Bob Boylan. I started interning <laughs> for this uh, small little radio weird idea called All Songs Considered. That that didn't go anywhere. But, um, <laughs> it, it, you
0: know,
3: it's amazing. It's amazing to see how people consider Tiny Desk the gold standard. A lot of my peers. Uh, in radio and and across the music industry, you know, I hear so many so many times about how these boardrooms are pulling out the hair, trying to figure out how can they recreate something like the tiny desk. You know, it's it's, it's considered oh. a a gold standard in in live music production, and it's just pretty sweet to be a part of it.
2: No doubt. Well, I can imagine that your job puts you on the front end quite a bit, getting. Bands and musicians ready for the experience. Is there anything particularly that they usually come to you most concerned about?
0: Um, Their nerve endings. (laughs) 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 I, I mean, we try to make them look when musicians play, they're playing usually in a dark club. Lights are, bright lights are on them. They could barely see the audience. They have, like, monitors, speakers right in front of them. They can hear everything super, super loud. Or else they have things in their ears that are playing the music really loud. They come to the desk. It's the middle of the day. There's not a light to be had. There's not an amplification of their voice. We're not, you know, there's no PA system. And, and so it's nerve-wracking. And, uh, you know, yeah. our job is to both push musicians To create something out of their box a little bit, but also to make them feel comfortable and and make them feel uh, you know amongst friends because they are. I mean we've we have them there because we're passionate about what they do. So we are there uh, (laughs) both the person who's put them in an uncomfortable spot and also the person who's supporting them.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I mean the audience of uh, NPR staff is are literally feet away. Right. Um, so it's, it's super in, intimidating.
2: How many people do you normally have watching them? Are they just taking their breaks from like a job that I have and running down to watch the concert?
0: Pre-COVID, uh, you could see a couple of hundred people in that little room. <laughs> and uh, and now it's a little different because uh, COVID restrictions and so forth. So, uh, But it is a time where uh, the people who are, well, not a lot of news gets done here. I'm just gonna say
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the contest. Yeah. What are you guys looking for in a submission?
3: I'm looking for someone to uh give me chills, you know. I I think mm. of past winners. I think of uh last year's winner uh Elisa Amador. I think of uh Linda Diaz and it's just like we watched the entire video but like when when you get those videos within the first 30 seconds you're just like you're at attention and you can't you you can't take your eyes off of the screen, uh, that's the feeling we're looking for. And you can get that with any genre, um, any walk of life. Um, just something that, that's really heartfelt, that evokes uh, some sort of emotion. Either it's making us laugh, making us cry, making us dance. It could be anything. <laughs> but in particular, it's, you know, just something to just grab us immediately.
0: Yeah, and, and Bobby said something important, which is Elisa uh, Amador is an artist who, uh, neither Bobby or I as judges understood the language of she was singing and she was singing in Spanish. And yet it still conveyed, and that is winning. You know, that is to, if you can do that, you've really done something pretty special. Uh, and one of the reasons we fell in love with her music was just how compelling her voice and the song was. And then hearing, looking at interpretation of the words was nice too, but it worked without that.
2: So just that special bit of authenticity and that special something.
0: I love that. It's a perfect word yeah. for it, the authenticity.
2: So you're both judges in the contest, and you have three other judges joining you. I heard one of them is Sharon Von Eden. Yeah. What Sharon, are you hoping she'll bring to the judges' table?
0: Uh, well, Sharon Von Edden and, and, and all the uh, the other Judges who are musicians, what they bring to the table is the experience of having had their nerves racked by a tiny desk concert. (laughs) (laughs) So they know, and I say that jokingly, but but they know what it means and what it takes to do it. So when they're watching these videos, trying to judge and find a winner, that's what they have in mind. One of the things they have in mind is, Mm. can this person, do they see the confidence in them and other things that it might take to pull this off?
2: No doubt. Well, the Tiny Desk Concert Series goes on tour. I know you were in Atlanta last year at Aisle 5 in Little Five Points. How are you choosing the people to go on tour with you? Uh,
0: Well, one of the ways of what works is as we judge these thousands and thousands of videos, we put little rating marks next to uh, many of these. And so when it comes time to go to a city, we just simply call up what are the artists In a particular city or area, I mean, it could be bigger than just the basic locale, but in a roughly driving area, who knocked us out the most? And then we sit and try to figure out, like, what would be the other three or four acts to play along with the contest winner who's going to be at that performance as well. And so that's how we invite um, the other artists.
2: That's a great system to set up a lineup. That seems incredibly fair and very cool. So for each of you, I'm sure you've both been asked this question a hundred times, but who is your dream bubble tiny desk concert?
0: Oof. (laughs) Bob, you go first. Oh, thanks, Bobby. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, being uh, someone who is, uh, older than everybody else on the planet, <laughs> or certainly feeling like that in the building, uh, and having done this for so long, there's a couple of artists from my like beginnings of loving music that I would love to see pull this off, and one of them uh, is actually would be someone like Paul Simon, like mm. like just to see him and be six feet away from these brilliant words that he's written touch my heart now obviously there's tons of new artists and so forth that excite me and thrill me and that's what we've been doing for all these years but but just to see someone like that or or mr mccartney or uh mr dylan um you know those are artists that in my life have meant a great deal to me and come on guys (laughs) have you have
2: you put the ask out there
0: i knock on doors (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I, I write letters send packages yes smoke signals, <laughs> <plain> <laughs> smoke signals yes, yep. uh, Gotcha. gotcha.
3: <laughs> what about you bobby well bob doesn't know this but if i ever get this this woman at the tiny desk i'll probably uh have an early retirement her name is anita baker oh, wow. and i just so desperately want to see her play behind the tiny desk she's on tour right now she sounds better than ever um She just uh, reminds me so much of home and my childhood, and her discography is just so, so special to me. Um, And I know she would do great, memorable things at the Tiny Desk. So one day, Miss Baker will play the Tiny Desk. Bobby, when's your
0: birthday? (laughs) June 1st. Uh, Okay. I got got a little work to do.
2: Tiny Desk concert creator Bob Boylan and producer Bobby Carter. Attention Atlanta musicians, the deadline to submit your video for the Tiny Desk Contest is Sunday, March 13th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, a visit with Atlanta comedian Lace Larrabee, and then a red carpet walk with Sarah Michelle Gellar. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE.
4: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled
5: workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders.
1: VR training can help
4: welding
6: students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career.
5: The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore
4: more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
2: This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Atlanta comedian Lace Larrabee brings to the stage Southern Charm and Rye Wit last year was a big year for larrabee in the summer she competed on america's got talent and in september she released her first comedy album white trash cinderella she also co-hosts the podcast cheaties and teaches comedy classes at the punchline comedy club when the comedian spoke with city lights host lois reitzis this past november she began by sharing why she decided to audition for America's Got Talent.
1: Well, you know, it's there's there's been comedians on in the past. It's the show is not really about comedy or about comics, but I have seen comedians go up there and attempt to compete with you know, more traditional talents like singing and dancing and it's helped their careers. And I thought, you know what, I did pageants, as you mentioned, (laughs) I did, I did pageants for years and I used to put my comedy monologues up against way more talented people. (laughs) And so I was like, you know what, I think I can handle this. I think I am uniquely prepared to compete on a, on a multi-talent talent show. So I did. And it, it, it has paid off. So I'm I'm very happy that I that I made that decision.
7: The judges unanimously loved you. What do you think charmed them so thoroughly?
1: Well I think that preparation is the most important thing. I was very prepared. I chose material for my first round that I had done I could do in my sleep. So I was very ready to get up there and And then a magical moment happened where Sofia Vergara interrupted me (laughs) during my audition set. (laughs) And it so happened that I have a line that goes with that sort of a question that I do in my, in my set usually, but I wasn't doing it in that particular set. So in my longer sets, I normally do it and it just came out so quick. And I think that's just 10 plus years of, you know, doing thousands of live shows all over the all over the country that I was just ready. I was just ready to handle it. And I came back with that line and it sounded like it came out of nowhere, unbeknownst to them, that's a line I have, you know? And it just happened to work so perfectly. And I think that's what charmed them because it seemed like it was, you know, off the cuff. And that's what good comedy should seem like, you know? But it was it was pretty wild that it happened that way. Even I was very surprised at that moment, but that's what, you know, that's what preparation gets you.
7: Yeah, four unanimous yeses. (laughs) So what was the takeaway? What came after your performance on the show?
1: I had really nice reactions online. So many people started following me and paying attention and, and being like, where can I see her? And, oh, she's going to do great in this business. And that was lovely. And they played, you know, America's Got Talent posts the videos and they get millions, millions of views. So that was really nice to be seen by the world because it's such an international show But then the next step was I got voted into the semifinals. So I went on to the live shows and that's when things kind of took a turn. (laughs) That's, that's when Simon buzzed me on stage and, and then all of those positive comments online turned to negative comments. And like I said, it was a wild ride, but by the end of the season, they brought me back for the finale and let me roast Simon Cowell (laughs) so that was a treat and then it was back to everybody loving me again so I I got a taste of what reality tv stars go through for sure yeah that was yeah something else not pretty no (laughs) I mean it
7: it it is obviously staged and manipulated but it's at the performer's expense which mm-hmm. which seems unfair. Well, we don't hear it now, but one of the immediate endearing impressions of seeing you perform is your thick southern accent, which is <laughs> irresistible.
1: Oh, thanks.
7: Would you talk about your upbringing in Georgia?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I... I love when people ask where I'm from because I'd always say all over Georgia, <laughs> which I am. So my parents met in Warner Robins. We lived there for a while. As you mentioned, I, I make fun of them in my stand up because they had me in high school, and you know that's that's always a, a rough ride when you've got teenage parents as kids. And then we lived in Warner Robins for a while. Then we moved to Cumming. We lived in Cumming in Forsyth County for about the same amount of time. All this is like six years at a time, by the way. So like six years, then another six years. Then we moved down to Glenville, Georgia in Tattnall County. Where uh, is which- that? Exactly. <laughs> that was the exact question I had when my parents moved there. So it's, it is about 35 miles west of Savannah or something like that. It's, it's around 35. Right, 30- 30 miles south of, or southwest of Statesboro, and then maybe a little further west of Savannah. But yeah, down there in the southeast corner of Georgia, and nobody knows where it is. Even people a couple counties away are like, where now? Hmm. <laughs> it has like, it has like one red light in the in the city. And yeah, then we lived there till I graduated high school. So another six years. And then I moved to Kennesaw to go to Kennesaw State University. And I've been in the Atlanta area for the past 20 years. And yeah. So I've, I know, I know Georgia. I know it pretty well.
7: Sounds <laughs> like you could give tours. I could. <laughs> you competed in pageants for mm-hmm. 14 years. Yes. And you have an interesting perspective on it. Would you <laughs> share that life? <lace? laughs>
1: I don't, I don't know if I can say on public radio, <laughs> what I say in my standup, but no, it was, it was kind of, not an option for me to not do it. I had to perform. I was a, I was a ham as a kid. I knew I wanted to be a performer. And during that time that we were in Glenville, I didn't have access to like a theater program or community theater and pageants were the thing. I mean, it's South Georgia. That's what you do. If you're a boy, you play football. If you're a girl, you do pageants, right? So I signed up, I signed up for a pageant at my school. I entered, I won. And the rest of the school was not happy about that. I here I came in as they used to call me, "Go back to where you came from, Yankee."
7: Oh,
1: you know, because I was I had moved there from North Georgia, so I that was a qualifies Yankee to you, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So they were pretty mad that I came in and, and won, but I loved it. It was a high, it's much like comedy, right? It's a, it's a you, you get up there, it's it's instant gratification, you know, you perform and then you are rewarded with, you know, rhinestones and flowers and <laughs> you, you got to do it again. You can't do it just once. You're like, oh, I can keep doing these. So I had a blast and it was a good challenge for me because, you know, there's skill to it. And I loved to learn and, and watch these other girls who had been doing it since they were toddlers. And I learned from them and I really enjoyed the challenge of getting up and trying to win. And as soon as pageants started to add in, cause I was about 13 when I did the first one and they started to add in talent portions and then it gets to where you get older you do the swimsuit portions as well and it gets to where you have the opportunity to make it to miss america if you if you compete in the preliminaries that get you there so that's where i spent the the final years of my pageants i did trying to get into the miss america pageant which i got close several times but most importantly i i won scholarship money and i paid for most of my college from doing it. So yeah, it worked out in the end. But yeah, my <laughs> specifically unique perspective on it is it all ultimately is silly. You know, it's we're up there wearing swimsuits and and acting like, you know, no, 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 it's for the scholarship money. And <laughs> there's <laughs> there's no need, there's no need to wear a bikini and five inch heels to get scholarship money, you know. But we defended it at the time. And looking back, it's just it's all very silly. But, you know, I like I said, it, it it prepared me to be tougher skinned out here, you know, to do things like America's Got Talent and to do things like stand up comedy. You know, it's it's hard for a heckler to to take me down because, you know, I had <laughs> I had judges, judges telling me if I was uh, good enough or not when I was a teenager. You know,
7: you also have very much of a feminist perspective but that judginess does not come out when you're talking about pageants.
1: It's tough. It is a conundrum. And I know that people are always like, yeah, but you're you're such a feminist. How could you have done that? Well, I guess at the true core of feminism, right, is is equality. And we should all be able to respect each other's decisions that we make to make it to our end goal, you know? And that just happened to be what I had access to at the time. And I, I took that opportunity and I made the most out of it and I took control of my future. I took control of, you know, I had full control over what I wanted to do on stage. Yes, there were swimsuit portions and all of that, but I chose to do that uh, and, and happily and it helped me, you know, gain confidence and, and it kept me fit. And I, I was proud to do it at the time. Like I said, looking back, I, I could have maybe pushed a little further. I should have maybe, I don't know, gone against the grain now, now when I'm looking back, I'm like, cause you know, this was a while ago, but I'm like, man, maybe I could have made a statement. I could have like worn a big potato sack and gone out barefooted and been <laughs> like, take this, you know, like I could have, I could have done other things, but I don't know. I think it is very feminist of me to have worked so hard in a system and made sure to stick to who I was. I never bent or broke from my views and my passions while I was up there. Every time I had an opportunity to grab a microphone, I was speaking up for other women, speaking up for what I believed in. And every time I got to do the talent portion, I chose to do what I wanted to do. I had many directors say, hey, but you have dance experience. Hey, you could learn a little song. You could do something else. And I said, no, I want to be funny. I'm a funny person. I think it's more powerful to to get laughs from an audience than just oh and you know, some applause. So I preferred to do comedic monologues while I did it. And I felt like that was my little my little protest while I was doing pageants. But not so little.
7: Now talk about art imitating life. You had a role in a TV series, Queen America. Yeah. Set in the world of beauty pageants and starring. No less than Catherine Zeta Jones as a yes. ruthless coach. <laughs> you played an online host. Yeah. Lace, what did you think of Queen America's portrayal of the pageant scene based on your experience?
1: I, and people are going to hate this because everyone wants the pageant world to be so much more cutthroat and dramatic than it actually is and so shows like queen america which what a fantastic opportunity i I shared the screen with Catherine katherine jones and it was i mean i still to this day can't believe i met a, an oscar winner and and was able to work alongside her on set but shows like queen america and there's so many other pageant centered shows and, and movies and all that they it's very exaggerated And because that's what people want, right? People want, they're like, oh, it's a bunch of girls. Well, they clearly all hate each other. You know, they clearly try to sabotage one another all the time. And like I said, people don't want to hear it, but that's not true. I made my best friends in the world (laughs) when I was in the pageant system, because I was meeting a bunch of other girls who came, you know, came up in their small towns and did the best that they could for themselves to try to, you know, make it to the big city and And the way to make it out was to do pageants at the time. That's what we knew. And my very best friend to this day is someone I competed with in the Miss Cherokee County pageant in 2003, I think. And yeah, we still, I mean, I was in, we were in each other's weddings We're you know, very best friends and, and we look back on that time very fondly and it just, it wasn't like it's shown on TV, but it's, it's TV. It's for entertainment. (laughs) You know. <laughs> but this is this is heartening
7: and and it isn't one's impression. I mean an outsider, mm-hmm. totally ignorant of the scene. That's not the impression. Mm-hmm. You co-host a podcast with another wonderful Atlanta-based comedian, Catherine Blandford. We spoke a few months ago. That podcast is called Cheaties. (laughs) Cheaties, all caps. Would you tell us your take on this show?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I know that y'all had an opportunity to talk. Catherine has also had an amazing year. She and I both went from, you know, just doing stand-up comedy around Atlanta and then struggling through the pandemic. And then we came up with this podcast right when the pandemic right right before it started actually we didn't really know what we were getting into but it was good timing <laughs> but we came up with this idea because my ex had cheated on me and i caught him and i used to do this joke which i actually used as the closer for my album that just came out and it was about how i caught him and how i collected the receipts as the kids say you got to scroll screenshot send yourself the screenshots well she was in the midst of catching her ex who also cheated on her she said halfway through <laughs> halfway through catching him she's devastated she's angry but then halfway through she thought Oh my God, I'm doing laces bit right now, (laughs) which, you know, I selfishly loved that she stopped to think of my comedy while she was in the middle of, of ending a relationship. But she said she almost called me in that moment, but proceeded to do exactly what the bit said, scroll screenshot, send herself the screenshot. So she had the evidence. So he couldn't change the story. And as she was going through that, right after the whole relationship fell apart, she called, we were talking about it, and I said, well, if the two of us, you know, with our accolades and our our drive and you know, all of that, and we are both, I think, really cool girls. You know, after all that, if we get cheated on, everybody gets cheated on. And I was like, let's help other people talk this out. And we said, let's start a podcast. And cheaties just came to me because I, it all started because I pictured like a box of Wheaties or a box of cereal (laughs) where people are usually like holding a spoon or, you know, like a, like a cereal advertisement. I thought, I was like, what if we held knives? We held big, sharp knives. and And we were on the cover of what looks like a Wheaties box and let's call it cheaties. And she was, she was down and we did it. We, I, I started a podcast studio in my in a shed in my backyard of my old house and now we are 230 episodes in
7: my goodness yeah is it possible to share one favorite story you've heard on the podcast oh
1: my gosh we have so many i know so, <laughs> so the way it works people call and they'll tell us that they either they either got cheated on but we also take the other side too people will tell us that they cheated and it's fascinating. It is fascinating what people will tell us. <laughs> so there is a lot in there if anybody wants to check it out. Definitely not safe for work, not safe for kids, but it is a great study on relationships and human behavior for sure. And more importantly coming out on top too, you know, learning that there is life after infidelity and mistakes and and that's really the beautiful part that we get into, but like I said there's been so many, I think this one was wild. There was, and I, I like this one because of the title I gave the podcast episode, <laughs> but she fell in love with a guy who needed a kidney. She gives him her kidney and then he cheats on her oh. months after she literally saves his life with her own organ. And of course, the big question was, you know, did you get the kidney back? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And she did not. And she has forgiven him. And, and that's just, I mean, I, at the end of the, that shocked me more than anything was that she is okay. She's okay with the decision she made. She, she gave it to him as if in the same way that you give a family member money. You're like, I'm not going to see it again. I'm just giving it, I'm giving it to you, you know, to help you out. And that's how she saw it. And she's really a beautiful person. And now she's in a, a great relationship and she's very happy. And, we don't know what happened to the kidney guy, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, we're hoping, he, hope he's doing well. Hope he learned his lesson, but, uh, yeah, that was wild. That, that was, that was the most extreme, I think case, uh, because that's something you can't, you can't take back, you know, no, no, no. And I did name the podcast, uh, that episode, Are You Kidney Me? And I was really oh, proud of that. So
7: <laughs> or, you're so organized, right? I don't understand why, but the field of comedy is still male-dominated. Yep, very much and so. And with, within that field, you are a champion for women. You launched the Laugh Lab, a course for women comedians that culminates in shows at the punchline, would you tell us how you coach others to strengthen their comedy chops?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we actually just had a graduation show last night, and it was one of the all-female classes. Over the pandemic, I started adding co-ed classes as well because, come to find out, more fellas were interested in braving the, the pandemic to come out and take comedy classes. And so I was like, well, I guess I'll I, I'll teach these guys too, and that's been really fun. But I still do the all-female classes as well. That's still the the anchor point of the Laugh Lab. And there's it's really not a big like secret to it. People, people are like, oh, how do you teach these people to be funny? And what I do is I just allow them to tell their story. And then I help them organize their story and add structure and make sure that they are using the economy of words and that they are focused on quality over quantity you know so it's really tightening up stories but i I make sure so my my specific technique is to just tell them to start with their own lives because that's what I do I, I m- all my stand up is mostly about my life as you've mentioned uh, my own experiences and I feel like if you stay unique to yourself then no one can ever accuse you of stealing jokes or you know trying to copy someone else you just got to tell your own story because that's what comedy's for we go to a comedy club to to see ourselves in someone else and to all laugh at shared experiences so that's what i that's what i tell all of my students i say start start from your own life you know and things that have happened that are silly or embarrassing or weird or strange or you know something that makes you angry because you know everyone needs to just yell into a mic sometimes about life, especially <clears throat> especially now, right? There's plenty of things to yell into a mic about. <laughs> oh my! But, you know, it's, it's all about, like I said, shared experiences and resonating with strangers and all realizing that we're not all that different.
7: To your point of screaming into a mic, I read that one class you teach addresses how to deal with hecklers. It's a fantastic topic because uh, uh, one needs to be prepared when you're exposed as you are on stage and stand up. How do you lace deal with hecklers?
1: Well, the good news is when it comes to heckling, most people are they're really truly in their head just trying to help, so they're in the audience and they are either just loudly responding, you know, instead of clapping and laughing, you say something they agree with or that resonates with them. And then they just go, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, she's right. (laughs) That's right. And that's really funny. And that, you know, it could bother some comics, especially new comics It can throw you off. But I think that's always funny. And I always try to loop those people into the show a little bit and engage a little as long as they're friendly you know but if you acknowledge them they they tend to calm down a little bit more if they are scary that's when the club usually or the venue usually steps in I I try to you know have a quick comeback if something comes to me in the moment you know you can always kind of pick on them and and get the audience on board to show them that they're you know being jerks you can get the audience to go like they're they're ruining the show right And if they see a whole room of people agree, sometimes they just realize that they're in the wrong, but sometimes they don't care. And that's when the club or a, you know, a bouncer or another comic will usually go up and go, Hey, you got to get out of here and drag the people out. But I I've been rushed on stage by someone. They didn't hit me or throw anything, but they, they got up in my face and it was a much older man. So there comes that thin line of like, uh, should I be respectful and you know or you know and, and then you're scared because you're like they could hit me they could take me down. I don't know what's about to happen. but yeah thankfully the club got in and grabbed him and dragged him out so that was that was nice but um,
7: thankfully indeed. so let's go mm-hmm. back to gentler topics. <laughs> I'm curious about. Established comedians who are role models, both for you and your students, are there any who exemplify, in your estimation, peak talent and command of the
1: stage? Oh, absolutely. There. That's that's the best part of being in the stand-up comedy world is. I don't know if non-comedians, if civilians, realize how many stand-up comics there are, right? And and it takes forever to get to that point, and it's very rare to get that famous. But there are so many more at the local level, and I'll I'll say, for instance, one of my one of my favorite big name stand-up comics is uh, Maria Bamford. She is absolutely incredible. If people are unaware of who she is, she's been doing comedy for. 30 plus years. I think she started in the late eighties. She is a consummate professional. She is always working on her craft. She never stops. She's always writing a new hour. She uh, has done it all. She's written for TV. She's written for herself. Obviously she's starred in shows. She's starred in commercials. She's done it all. She's done a little bit of everything and never stops working. And, and she just happens to be one of my just favorites, just as far as style and genre. She has a lot of voices and she's incredible. She just, she's never stopped. She's never just like relaxed. And I think she's a great example of a working comic today that people could easily look up and find her content. But on the local level, like I said, there's just so many more that deserve that amount of recognition, but you know, may or may not ever make it there, but I've watched crush, you know, in front of two people or in front of a hundred people. And, uh, I'll I'll shout out someone in Atlanta who I absolutely love who's been doing comedy I think about 13 or maybe a little longer uh years, Katie Hughes. Incredible comic. Her uh, she, like writing-wise, uh, she's she reminds me a lot of Maria Bamford. She never stops writing and she never stops working. And she is currently writing in addition to writing her stand up. Uh, and always writing new new things. Her album came out uh, two years ago. It's called Queen of the Castle. It's so incredibly funny and so good. And it, like I said, I mean, she needs to be recognized on national level. Hopefully, one day she will be. But she's also now writing pilots. So she's pitching TV shows all the time, and she's doing it from Atlanta. And I think, you know, that's the coolest thing to me is. Show showing people like I've done, like Catherine's done, like so many other comics have done uh, that you you don't have to move to New York or L.A. to make it. Atlanta is a hotbed of talent and the entertainment industry is growing every day here. And I just I love the fact that we're all doing big things and working towards bigger things while being able to stay in the South. And that's a big part of her stand up as well as her story and growing up poor and all of that. And yeah, she and I are actually working on a pilot together right now. And yeah, she, uh, she inspires me because like I said, she just, she never stops. And I think that's the most important thing, right? You never, you don't know what you're capable of if you quit.
2: Atlanta comedian Lace Larrabee her comedy album is White Trash Cinderella and more information is on our website wabe.org slash City Lights coming up City Lights producer Summer Evans hits the red carpet for a conversation with Sarah Michelle Geller, the winner of this year's SCAD TV Fest Icon Award Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Last month, SCAD hosted their annual SCAD TV Fest, and actor Sarah Michelle Geller was in attendance to receive this year's Icon Award. City Lights producer Summer Evans caught up with the television
4: star at the SCAD red carpet event and filed this report. Geller is notable for her role as Buffy Summers in the hit 1990s early-aught series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Her film credits also include I Know What You Did Last Summer, The Grudge, and Scooby-Doo. While in Atlanta, Geller discussed her new Paramount Plus series, Wolfpack. She stars in the teen drama alongside actor Rodrigo Santoro. In Wolfpack, Geller plays Kristen Ramsey, an arson investigator looking into a mysterious wildfire in California. The plot follows a teenage boy and girl who discover a terrifying creature that is awakened due to the wildfire. While on the red carpet at SCAD TV Fest, Geller explained why she enjoys working on supernatural genres.
3: I think as an actor, we like to play pretend. We like to put ourselves in the situations that we might not necessarily find ourselves in. But I've always said that Supernatural a lot of times allows you to have the most superhuman stories because we're really utilizing those monsters as the metaphor for the demons in our our own minds.
4: Geller is also an executive producer of the show, alongside Jeff Davis. Davis is known for creating drama series such as Criminal Minds and Teen Wolf. On the red carpet, I asked Davis what it's been like to work alongside Geller.
5: Sarah likes to give specific notes on her character, she's very trusting. So she's basically like, you send me the script, I'll act and I'll trust where the story's going. Um, she's great with editing too, though. She knows pacing. So I I rely on her for notes on editing and any line adjustments she wants to do, we talk over. But, um, it's great having her trust, actually. She gives me a lot of trust. But the funny thing is, is we become the best of friends. She and I clicked almost immediately after our first Zoom call. And, um, We just got very close, and she's a great partner in this endeavor, actually. She's an excellent executive producer. She knows what she's doing. She's had so much experience, Um, so I rely on her a lot.
4: The show's focus may be about werewolves, but Wolfpack tackles a lot of deep issues, such as anxiety, global warming, and struggles with social media.
5: I always think that uh, horror and suspense, it's very compatible with our own emotional and mental turmoil. So that's why, like, you get a lot of stories where is the main character going crazy or is this really happening? Like, Rosemary's Baby is essentially uh, a metaphor for postpartum depression. It's fascinating, yeah. The Exorcist is the same thing. It's a metaphor for uh, the fear of your own child and your own child growing up and what if they turn into a monster when they grow up. So... All that stuff is like, it's so grounded in human development and human psychology, it just works really well. And I I find horror and the supernatural just another way to explore that part of our lives.
4: The four main characters of the show are played by Bella Shepard, Armani Jackson, Chloe Rose Robertson, and Tyler Lawrence Gray, all of which are between the ages of 19 and 21 years old.
5: I like working with young actors because they have such passion for it. I mean, sometimes they come in and they want to be famous. But others, like these kids, as these kids especially, they really want to learn it as a craft and they want to work on it and get better. There are a lot of young actors out there. There's, it's a hard thing because when they're five, they're just being cute and playing themselves. When they're 13, 14, 15, they're suddenly aware of themselves, and the acting gets a lot more difficult because they're so self-conscious now. Then there's this period of, of this fallow period where they have to transition from child actor to adult. So it is tough. It's a tough business for young teen actors, especially because they are they've still got that self-consciousness and yet they're not adults yet. Um, so they have to learn. Yeah. Um, but I like them because uh, there's an innocence and a, um, they haven't become totally cynical yet. Yeah, they're not jaded yet.
2: <laughs> that was City Lights producer Summer Evans speaking with producer Jeff Davis and actor Sarah Michelle Geller. Wolfpack airs Thursdays on Paramount Plus, and more information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. In 2021, City Lights began our series, Speaking of Art, in order to highlight the many diverse visual artists in our city. We have since expanded the series, and today we add Speaking of Yollywood to our collection. Atlanta is known as the Hollywood of the South, and with our newest Speaking Of series, we are honored to highlight some of the many local professionals that help keep our city's film and television industry thriving.
6: Hello, I am Kenya Morgan, and I am a costume coordinator in Atlanta's film and television industry. I got my start in the film and television industry after a major career reset when the job i had for almost 20 years went away and i found out about the georgia film academy because my mom was reading a newspaper while she was getting her tires worked on and it mentioned the georgia film academy being created by governor nathan deal and i was part of the first graduating class from the Georgia Film Academy. I have a unique livelihood I enjoy. First, I tuck into a strong cup of coffee and then I touch base with my costume supervisor for any priorities for the day. And then I check out what's simmering in my email so that I can nudge any vendor communications or contracts that need attention but my primary focus is the money. Reconciling receipts, purchase orders, and any other outgoing payments uh, go into a cost report for the week of all departmental expenditures. That report is due every Friday to my supervisor to have for her budget meetings and reports with production. Sprinkle in being a kind of administrative solutions specialist for our costume crew, and that is a day. I'm just fascinated by the skilled artisans working in costumes. So our tailors and textile artists, and milliners, jewelers, leathersmiths, mold makers. Also our buyers who source fabric and garments from all over. It's it's fascinating to watch them all work. I sew is a lightweight hobby. But to see these masters of craft in the midst of the creative process, it's a revelation and inspiration. Uh, I think the biggest misconception is that actors and celebrities are just wall to wall all the time. Uh, Actors are on set or in training or rehearsals or any number of other project obligations. They're not just cruising by the costume office, Unless, of course, they have a costume fitting with the designer. The television series Black Lightning Season 1 holds a special place because it was the first time industry networking helped me land a job. The costume designer wanted to work with a specific PA, but that PA was not available. So that PA recommended me to the designer and I was available. So it all worked out. Wakanda Forever is also a favorite because my skills as a coordinator over the past few years underwent a significant expansion due to the complexity of the production combined with industry COVID compliance guidelines. I was at a loss when my former career ended in 2015, and being part of the film and TV industry had not been on my radar since college. But Thanks to Governor Deal's initiative to grow the the below-the-line film and TV workforce in Georgia by creating the Georgia Film Academy, here I am. And what the industry is building in Atlanta is exceptional. I have extraordinary opportunities, and I look forward to what the future brings. Costume Coordinator
2: Kenya Morgan. More information about Kenya's work, as well as our entire Speaking of series, is on our website, wabe.org citylights. Art on the Atlanta Beltline is expanding their reach with the help of generous grants from the City of Atlanta's Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs and the National Endowment for the Arts. This new $75,000 in funding will directly support the free linear public gallery that stretches 12 miles and runs through 20 communities that surround the Beltline Corridor. Atlanta Beltline's Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer, Nonette Sykes, talks about how this funding will impact various communities.
6: We're so grateful to be able to bring art to so many neighborhoods and to support local artists who live and work right here in the city of Atlanta. And it's a living illustration of the vision that we've long held for the Beltline, to be this melding of people, cultures, communities and perspectives.
2: Art on the Atlanta Beltline is a component of the Beltline's arts and culture programming and is the largest exhibition of its kind in the Southeast. More information can be found on art.beltline.org. You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of art and culture. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzis. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Kanaby. I'm City Lights Senior Producer Kim Drobes, and I invite you to connect with us on social media. We are at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta.
3: From WABE
6: Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.
2: Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org.